This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. There is a story in my family about one of the grandparents or great-grandparents on the Great Plains living in a sod house, a house built out of the earth and into the side of a hill. As the story goes, one day Grandma pulled open a drawer and there was a snake. I don't know whether it was venomous, but Grandma didn't care. As the story goes, she grabbed the shotgun and blasted the snake and the dresser to smithereens. The moral of the story is that just as soon as you've set up house and you think everything is in order, threats can appear unexpectedly and require a decisive response. Just about a century after the Reformation began, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands and across Europe and the British Isles faced an unexpected threat. It came from a son of the church who had been educated in the best university in the Netherlands, who had attended the best seminary with the best, most orthodox professors. Still, for reasons we may fully never understand, he proposed what were in some ways subtle but fatal revisions of the Reformed faith, of the Protestant Reformation, so that salvation was no longer to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The covenants of works and grace became muddled. The decisive authority of Scripture was undermined. In short, the entire Reformation was in jeopardy and in a place that no one would have expected it to happen. That is why the Synod of Dort met for six and a half months in the Netherlands from 1618 to 1619. This season, we've been thinking and talking about the canons of Dort and the five responses by the Reformed Churches of Europe and the British Isles drafted and adopted at that synod. Few people have given as much attention to the Synod and Canons of Dort as our own W. Robert Godfrey. He finished his Ph.D. research on the Synod of Dort in 1974 and has been writing and speaking on it ever since. Now he's published a brand new commentary on the Canons of Dort, Saving the Reformation, the Pastoral Theology of the Canons. It's in hardcover from Reformation Trust and available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Bob was president of Westminster Seminary, California for 24 years and has taught in Philadelphia and Escondido for 45 years. He's the author of several other books, all of which you should read. Hi, Bob. And, Hi, Scott. And I feel suddenly very tired. <laughs> 45 years, I should shut up. <laughs> well, it takes some people a long time to figure out what they're doing and to get it all right. Very true. Very true indeed. <laughs> you finally hit your stride after 45 years. Yes, I can hardly stride at all, but I am glad to be here sitting down and talking yeah. to you. Yeah, hitting it just as we need a walker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Well— I often ask and usually begin these discussions with the question, why another book on this topic? But in fact, there are not very many books on the canons of Dort. So why aren't there very many books on an event and a document that is manifestly important for Protestants and the Reformed in particular? Well, I think in the English-speaking world, the Presbyterian form of Reformed Christianity far overshadowed the Dutch Reformed world or the Continental Reformed world. And therefore, the Westminster standards, uh, noble and majestic as they are, the Westminster Confession and shorter and larger catechisms, have attracted much more attention, both because of their function in Presbyterian churches, but also their importance to Presbyterian theologians that have dominated the Reformed world in America. So it's understandable. You're saying there's just not enough Dutchmen in North America speaking English. Is that what you're telling us? In my experience, 
points there are never enough Dutchmen. <laughs> we need more Dutchmen. We okay. need more Dutchmen. All They've right. done their part with large families, but nonetheless, uh, we always need more Dutchmen. But the principal documents about the Synod are not in English, so the original sources. So that's actually a big problem, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, there are some scholars that can still read the Acta and the Post-Acta and so forth, but increasingly, probably not very many. Right. The advantage, as one old Presbyterian friend said to me many years ago, is that uh, having confessional documents in other languages means we can keep retranslating them and therefore make them sound more contemporary, whereas the Westminster Standards being written in English, it's hard to tamper with them. Well, it's true. Yeah, if you propose to modernize it, then that raises hackles. Although I guess it's been done. I and I think done. there's a project working on it now, but it's always, yeah, it's always a dicey enterprise. Whereas inherently, yeah, when your confessions are in German and Dutch and French and then, Latin. or Latin, yeah, then uh, you have to translate them somehow. So just in case the listener has not memorized the canons of Dort, <gasps> why that would be, who <laughs> Who could say? But it's possible that our dear listener has not memorized the canons of Dort. Walk us through that quickly. So when we say canons, first of all, there's only one N. Actually, there are two Ns, not three. Yeah. Okay. Two Ns. That's right. So it's C-A-N-O-N, right. not C-A-N-N-O-N. Right. Leading my wife to suggest an early article I wrote on the canons, did the canons misfire, yeah. <laughs> which was very clever, but possibly confusing to yeah. various people. I have actually seen an edition of the canons of Dort with two Ns. In the title, so. And they met in an armory, so there could potentially have been actual military canons of Dort, but there were In the neighborhood, yes. But canon in this context means rules from the Greek. So the canons of Dort are the rulings of Dort relative to the uh, controverted theological issues that the synod had to address. And there are five of them because? Because in 1610, the year after Arminius died and Many people thought maybe the problems were over. They always think that. I know. Problems are <laughs> seldom solved by deaths. A group of Armenian ministers in the Dutch Reformed Church, a very small group relative to the total number, some 42, wrote a petition, which was known at the time as a remonstrance, a petition to the civil government pleading for toleration for their views. And they summarized their views, their Armenian views, in five points. And the head of the civil government saw the explosive potential of this statement and so did what all governments try to do, try to keep it a secret. And like all government secrets, it leaked out. So from that time on, the discussion revolved around these five points. So it was really the Armenians who set the agenda. It was the Armenians who had five points to make. And I always stress the point that Calvinists have never summarized Calvinism in five points, but they do have five answers to the five Armenian errors. Yeah, that's actually kind of important, and it's a point that you and I have made in previous discussions. As you know, the points I make are almost always important. <laughs> Here on <laughs> Office Hours, as important as the five points of Calvinism, as they're called— somewhat improperly perhaps— but as important as these five points are, these are really five responses to— this remonstrance, this complaint, this petition, and it's not as if the Reformed gathered from Europe and the British Isles and the Netherlands to formulate Reformed theology and boil it down into five points. Right. That's exactly right. They were addressing the problems that had been hiding in a drawer in the dresser. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, actually, in an important way, that's right. I mean, we laugh, but in fact, you have said before and recently at the conference and elsewhere that everything that Arminius wrote, 
he put into a drawer. That's exactly right. You know, you talked about his education, but in addition to his splendid Orthodox education, he also had been examined by a conservative reformed classis in Amsterdam and passed it, apparently. They required subscription to uh, the confessions. Arminian. Which means what? What does that mean to subscribe the confessions? You, you send in $5 a month and they send you something? Uh, no, this is sort of like canons is different from canons. So this subscription is different from that subscription. This means that you sign under the confessional documents, literally uh, stating, right, yeah, writing your literally, name underneath and stating your agreement with them. And Arminian scholars have made a big deal that no one can find that Arminius actually subscribed the confession. But of course, lots of things are lost in history. The point is, the church in Amsterdam required everyone to subscribe. So we're quite sure Arminius must have as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sure. And Reformed ministers had been subscribing, literally writing their names underneath the documents since the 1570s, at least, maybe even a little earlier, but certainly by the first Senate of Dort is 1574 or so. Right, exactly. So that had been going on for a very long time. So the notion that we can't find the document, that it didn't happen. And then again, when he was appointed a professor at the University of Leiden in 1603, he was examined as to his orthodoxy by Franciscus Gomaris, who was one of the leading orthodox theologians at the time. And Gomaris declared himself satisfied with the examination. So, you know, one's left with limited options. Either Gomaris was a lousy examiner or Arminius didn't entirely tell the truth or somewhere in between. But in any case, outwardly, Arminius time and again seemed to indicate his orthodoxy, but in his writings, he was dissenting from it. He was controversial in his uh, early ministry, almost from the moment he was ordained and began preaching, jumped right into the book of Romans and began expositing it, and there was considerable controversy. Right. He seems to have had an interest in Romans from very early on. We have a record that when he was doing graduate work in Basel, he gave some public lectures on Romans. So even that early, he had shown an interest in Romans. And yes, then when he got to Amsterdam, he began to preach from the book of Romans and got himself in trouble both when he preached on Romans 7 and when and he preached on Romans 9, which are chapters where an Arminian might well get himself into trouble with <laughs> Calvinist hearers. Yeah, and we all say we know what Arminian means, but he was the first one in a sense. That's right. Now, there were other people in other parts of the world. There was a fellow in Cambridge in the 1570s or so, Peter Barrow, who had said similar things. So in some ways, he was part of a broader movement, a discontent with the Reformation. Well, you could even say uh, maybe some of the followers of Melanchthon and the synergistic movement amongst the Lutherans had parallels. It's just a recurring phenomenon in the history of theology that people get nervous if you emphasize grace in their minds too much and they think you're going to undermine the call to holiness, the call to faith, you're going to undermine the goodness of God. That seems to have been a particular concern of Arminius. So, uh, yeah, these issues are significant issues. That's kind of important, that business about being concerned about grace you know, not leading to sufficient sanctity, that looking at these issues this year has been illuminating for me for a variety of reasons. But for some reason, that issue had never come to my attention before, that one of the things that motivated Arminius and his followers was that he was concerned, and they, following him, were concerned that by then, traditional Reformed theology didn't really stimulate people to sufficient godliness and obedience. And so they changed the theology in a way that they thought would lead to greater obedience and greater sanctification. And Arminius was really quite hotly critical of the traditional approach. 
Right. And of course, it's ironic. Seldom are real Calvinists accused of being antinomian or indifferent to holiness. In fact, usually the charge against Calvinism by outsiders is that they're legalistic. So it's almost more a theological point than a practical point to worry about the implications of Calvinist theology for holiness of life. Do you think that the state church and the concern that lots of people had about state churches at the time, on the one hand, they thought the state should impose a church. Most of them couldn't imagine any other way of doing business. This is just the way things have always been. It's the way they should be. And yet, as they looked at people, there were people, obviously, in the British Isles and in the Netherlands who were dissatisfied with the level of sanctity that they saw. They wanted more. Yes, that certainly is true. I think it's more true in Britain than in the Netherlands because the state church in Great Britain, the Church of Scotland and the Church of England, were imposed on everyone from the top. The Reformed Church in the Netherlands, that was not really the case. People who joined the Reformed Church were more persuaded. It's not to say there was no problem with formalism, but uh, the Reformed Church didn't become the church of a majority of those in the northern part of the Netherlands until late in the 17th century. So the Reformed Church was still growing at the time of the Synod of Dort, and formalism was not the problem in the Netherlands that it was in Britain. One of the documents that we have from Arminius that he actually made public, he didn't publish it, but he did read it in a public setting, was his Declaration of Sentiments. Right. What does that tell us about where he was just before he died? This is 1608, and he died in 1609. Well, once again, it's a document of self-justification in terms of the theological positions he'd been taking. He appeals to uh, earlier ministers in the church that had held to similar points of view. His great focus of attack is supralapsarianism, which he believed made God the author of sin. Oh, he wanted to justify God. He wanted to vindicate God's right. righteousness. Yes, exactly. So it's a longish document, but in reality, the positive points he makes are quite brief in there. And yeah, are exactly the kind of compromises of sovereign grace that one will see later actually more radically in many of his followers. So in 1610, 42 of his followers formulate this complaint, this petition, this remonstrance. And what were the five things about which they complained? Well, the five points of the Arminians was, first of all, an insistence that election was conditional, that you had to meet certain conditions to be numbered among the elect. And what were those conditions? Uh, particularly faith and perseverance to the end. And obedience. And obedience along the way, exactly. Then, secondly, that Christ died for all sins and for every man. Thirdly, that sinners were unable to help themselves. We can come back to that because that, at least as formulated in the 1610 Remonstrance, seems orthodox as it stands by itself. But then you get to number four. Then you get to number four, and they teach that <laughs> grace is resistible. Yeah. So, so when they said grace in number three. Yeah, the sin in number three is not so total that you can't resist grace yeah. when it's offered. And grace is not so sovereign and powerful. That it necessarily overcomes your deadness in sin. Right. And then there's the fifth point. And the fifth point is particularly disingenuous, it has always <laughs> seemed to me. They said, as to, <laughs> they said, as to perseverance in faith, we need more time to study that. Yeah. Now, of course, the doctrine of perseverance had been clearly taught amongst the Reformed since the time of Calvin. And all this time later to say they haven't had enough time to study it is just, I think, dishonest. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? 
Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential residential village. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. And of course, if you go back and look at what Arminius said in 1608, it's fairly clear that he's dissatisfied with Calvin's and Basis and the traditional reform, not just those fellows, but the churches had been saying about perseverance, that God uh, will preserve his people and that nobody can snatch them out of Christ's hand, which something Jesus himself happened to say at least once. But those words need to be interpreted (laughs) (laughs) to mean the opposite of what they say. So here you have these five points, and we sort of touched on this. Three and four have to be taken together. Does that explain why when you look at the five points, and I have it here on my phone in front of me, the five heads of doctrine from the Synod of Dort, there's the first, and then there's the rejection of errors. We'll come back and talk about that in a minute. The second, the third and fourth are together. Right. And then there's the fifth. So in a sense, it looks like there's only four. So three and four together because? Because the Synod and the Calvinists before the Synod believed that the truth of what the Arminians were saying about how lost we were in sin does not come clear until it's seen in relation to the discussion of the irresistible grace. So when the Arminians talk about conditional election, contrast that with the way that you or the Reformed churches would talk about election. What's the difference? Well, the key difference is— as it's been briefly stated, is we believe in unconditional election, that election originates in eternity in the mind of God and does not depend on our responses to the offers of grace, that uh, election is God's plan of calling people to faith and his determination to work out that plan. And so it is not conditioned on us, but is uh, established and certain in the mind of God from eternity. But for Arminius, and particularly for his followers, does God elect particular persons, or how does election work now under the Remonstrance scheme? Under the Remonstrance scheme, God elects conditions, in effect, not persons. Say that again. That's very important. Everything you say is important, but— Good. I was embarrassed to say that myself, (laughs) but I'm glad you did. In Um, in particular, though, the listener needs to grasp that God isn't actually electing persons. Right. That's the great Calvinist doctrine, that God elects individual persons one by one in his great plan of eternity. But for the Arminians, they can talk about election, and if you're not careful in your reading of them, it can sound orthodox initially. But what they're really talking about is God establishing 
from eternity, electing certain conditions that individuals must meet to be part of the elect. And if you meet those conditions, then you are elect. Exactly. Insofar as you continue to meet them. Exactly. As we said earlier, you have to believe, you have to obey, you have to persevere. So we're not using elect at all in the same way that you and I or the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Standards. More importantly, the Book of Romans. Or the Book of Romans, yeah. Uses it, right, exactly. Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated but you see, the old Arminians or the old remonstrants in the 17th century were smart enough to know that the language of election and predestination is in the Bible. Today, a lot of Arminians, if you say, do you believe in predestination? They say, no, I don't believe in predestination. Well, then they don't believe the Bible. The older Arminians were smarter than that. They knew they had to have some doctrine of predestination because the language is in the Bible. And so they came up with this reinterpretation of what it meant. It's a radical redefinition of a well-established, as you say, biblical term, biblical category, biblical doctrine, but redefined in a significant way. And the same is true of the atonement, right? Exactly. Now, when you and I talk about the atonement, we think about Jesus laying down his life for particular persons intentionally. We even might say that God the Father gave a people to the Son, and the Son came for those people, laid down his life, not merely to make salvation possible— but to actually accomplish their redemption. Exactly right. And that's what Arminians end up denying. So at first glance, the declaration that Christ died for every man and for every sin sounds great until you realize that his dying for every man and every sin doesn't actually save anybody. It just makes it possible. It just makes it possible. And further, didn't Arminius say, and, and didn't the remonstrance conclude, that God has sort of endowed all humans, more or less, by nature with certain abilities, that if only they capitalize on those abilities, that they can be saved? It's probably not so much Arminius who said that as some of the later Arminians. It's interesting when you read the rejection of errors at the Synod, how much more radical the teachings seem to be. It's intriguing. The Synod never refers to Arminians and really never refers to Remonstrants either. Remonstrant was the common way of speaking about these people in the 17th century. The Synod just rejects certain errors and says, in effect, figure out for yourself whether you're somebody who embraces that error or not. But the errors by 16, 18, 19, which is only at the most nine years after the Remonstrance of 1610, the errors have become quite radical that the Synod felt it needed to address and reject. If we use more traditional categories and say that Arminius had adopted a semi-Pelagian point of view, some of those who identified with him only nine years later, ten years later, are much more semi-Pelagian than he was. And some of those folks are really embracing ideas that were widespread and influential prior to the Reformation, this notion that God had endowed everyone with certain potential that if only they capitalized on it. Right. It is in many ways a revision to uh, pre-Reformation theology in a variety of ways. And that's why I called my book Saving the Reformation— yeah, it's available at good bookstores everywhere. Because I think there's a tendency to see the five points of Calvinism as just kind of an icing on the Reformed cake, you know, nice little addition, but not really essential. And my book tries to argue what Dort says is not just a peripheral theological discussion, it's a foundational theological discussion to save the Reformation. 
So, for example, William of Ockham had said that God is prepared to co-act with those who capitalize on what is within them. And then Gabriel Beale, who wrote a commentary on the sentences that was very influential and who really sort of shaped the early Luther, said to those who do what lies within them, God denies not grace. And Luther's conversion, in a sense, can be in some ways measured by his reaction to and rejection of that notion that God is prepared to co-act or to those who do what lies within them, God denies not grace. Right. Exactly. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you write this book and you published it. It's out in hardcover and available everywhere. Saving the Reformation. Tell us, I guess, why ultimately the Reformation needs to be saved. Maybe the Remonstrants were right to change everything, and uh, maybe the Reformation was a mistake the way it happened. You keep talking that way, I'm going to put you in a drawer. Um, <laughs> you know, go find my grandma or find her shotgun. <laughs> Part of what motivated me to write this book was that I think the Canons of Dort as a document are a great treasure for the church. It's a great theological statement, but it's also a great statement of the implications for the life of the Christian, the piety of a Christian that flows out of that theology. The canons were written very intentionally for the church to help the church, and I think they are a help to the church. The reason I think the canons have not had the attention that they really deserve in the life of the church, even in the life of Dutch Reformed churches that formerly subscribe them, is that the translations we've had of the canons have remained rather Latinate, even though they're English. And the biggest problem there is that Latin works beautifully to have long sentences that remain perfectly clear to the Latin reader. But if you just translate those sentences and leave them long in English, they aren't perfectly clear anymore. Particularly for contemporary English readers, long English sentences become bewilderingly difficult. So what I did at the center of this book was to retranslate the canons in what I hope is a more modern English form. I haven't tampered with the vocabulary. The vocabulary was never all that technical, but I've tried to break up the sentences so that people can really read them. And what becomes clear is this is really very straightforward stuff. It's very manageable for lay people to read and understand and receive a blessing from. And that's what I'm really hoping will happen. And you also explain them, right? You don't just translate them. Right. I have the translation, and then after the translation, I have a relatively brief commentary, a few paragraphs on each article and uh, each rejection of error in the canons. This rejection of error thing, now this is something with which people may not be familiar. For example, if you look at Schaff's Creeds of Christendom, he didn't translate the rejection of errors. He just translated the canons. Right. So they often get overlooked. But there is some really valuable stuff in the rejection of errors. There is. And I had debated at one point whether I wanted to do a commentary on the rejection of errors. And uh, the more I looked at the rejection of errors, the more I saw exactly what you're saying, that there's valuable stuff there that shouldn't be neglected or overlooked. The problem with the rejection of errors is it is a tiny bit difficult to translate because first they state what the error is. It's, it begins, the synod rejects the following error. And then you have to state the error, and then you have to give the synod's response to the error. And you fear a little bit that <laughs> the reader is not going to be able to figure out clearly which is the error and which is the truth. Yeah. So I've tried to make that as clear as I can. 
And you've also included an outline in this book? Right. There are several appendices in the back of the book. The first one is a fairly long interaction with Arminius challenging the uh, claims of some contemporary scholars about what a nice guy he was. And I don't think he was nastier than anybody else, particularly at the time, but he was not a nice guy. And uh, I'm trying to show he actually was treated very well by the Calvinists and was um, a little underhanded in response, I think. Yeah, the victim narrative. Yeah, the poor Arminius story I reject. But then the other appendices try to outline the canon so that the student or the teacher can see clearly how they develop and the kind of rationale behind writing the canons the way they were. And then I offer a, a guide that relates the rejection of errors to the positive article so you can see how they interplay with each other. And then I also translate what the Synod declared on the Sabbath. We forget that the Synod of Dort did a lot of other things besides preparing the canons. The churches had been waiting some 30 years for a national synod. There was a lot of backed up material that they wanted addressed. And one of the things the synod addressed was, what should we think about the Sabbath for Christians? And they offered six points that are interesting. So I retranslated those six points as well. And that's valuable because sometimes people talk about the continental view of the Sabbath and the English view of the Sabbath as if they were at loggerheads with each other. Right. And they're clearly not. There are perhaps some distinctions, but they are not at loggerheads with each other. What did you learn in doing this book that you didn't know? Well, actually, as I started out on this article on Arminius, for all the years I've read things, I never realized that he had never published anything in his own lifetime. You know, you check out of the library or buy the works of Arminius. Yeah. They're three big, <laughs> thick volumes. And yeah. you think, because theology was easy to publish in the late 16th, early 17th century, that he must have published these things. And I was really surprised to learn that he hadn't published any of it. So one more time, you ducked this question a minute ago. I'm going to try again. I'm not going to let you off the hook. What if Arminius and the Remonstrants were right? Or why were they wrong? Does the Reformation need to be saved? Or should we just give in and go along with the program and say, well, you know what? They're basically right. And this is all a big to do about nothing. Well, the reason the Reformation has to be saved is because one of the essential teachings of the Reformation is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Scripture is our only authority. And the Arminians then and now have neatly convinced certain people that Calvinism is really an exercise in logic and rational deduction. It's not an exercise in exegesis. And I think the Canons of Dort show very clearly that it was the Arminian theology that was rationalistic, starting with the goodness of God. Arminius develops all the rest of his theology rationally. But the Calvinists, I really believe, from the beginning— desired only to be biblical. And I think that's what the canons primarily save for us, biblical teaching about election, about sin, about the work of Christ, about grace. And the gospel is at stake, isn't it? It is. If you really believe in grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, you cannot agree with the Arminians on these points because they, some subtly and some baldly, undermine those very key Reformation doctrines. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.